Embark on a profound journey through the life and legacy of Michael Chappie Grice, a man whose father, a Pullman porter, played a pivotal role during the era of American passenger railroads. The focus is on the Grice family's remarkable resilience in the face of racial discrimination and economic hardships. Set against the backdrop of systematic challenges, the episode explores the crucial role of Pullman porters in African-American communities during a transformative period. My name is Michael Chappie Grice. Uh, Chappie comes from my dad, and that was his nickname, and he was Chappie Grice, and his dad was Big Chappie, and I, of course, then was Little Chappie. So as soon as I could get rid of that little, I just went on to Michael Chappie Grice and made a name for himself. Um, I'm a resident of Portland, Oregon. I was born and raised here. My kids was born and raised here. My grandkids was born and raised here. And uh, my dad was born here in 1922. So that means that his dad was one of the pioneers among African-Americans who came to this region of the country. They came here primarily to work on the railroad. The pay was good. Uh, they were independent. Uh, they got away from Arkansas, in the case of my family, and Oklahoma, in the case of E. Shelton Hill, who was featured in my film, and later became the director for the Urban League. So I was born and raised in Portland. I went to high school here at Grad High School, and I played in the band. And then uh, in my senior year of high school, I was notified that I had scored so high on the National Merit Scholarship qualifying test that I was eligible to go to any college in the United States, including the U.S. Naval Academy, Air Force Academy, Notre Dame. They all wrote me a letter. I never heard such a thing. And uh, uh, and then, of course, as relationships go, a gentleman, I can't remember his name, came and he talked to me, took our family out to dinner, so I chose his college. <laughs> That's how little I knew about negotiating where you're going to go to school. And I, I liked Amherst College, and I liked Howard University, but they seemed way far away compared to going to Iowa. That's how little I knew about geography, and nobody helped me with that. You know, my family encouraged me. They wanted me to go to college, and I was the first person in my family to graduate from college in my immediate family. People always ask me, so where'd you grow up? And I don't believe you can grow up until you leave home. So I was born and raised here, but I grew up in Chicago, Kansas City, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Georgia, places that I traveled, mostly in the continental United States but also including Canada because my first few years teaching, they would fire me at the end of, the, of my year, uh, my teaching year and then hire me back again the day after school started so I could never get a contract with the district. And I believe that it has something to do with the fact that I was an advocate for and a teacher of black history. I had a really good run in school and I wasn't paying too much attention to that tenure thing. I was working every day and, and uh, eventually I had a family, but I had a foster son and uh, in the summertime, we would move to Vancouver, Canada, because the money stretched a little further, and I was living in a foreign country and learning all about this and that. And I'd come back, and, and that was in 1970, 71, 72. In 1974, I, I was hired as a professor at Linfield College in McMinnville. And so I'm turning out people who were getting their teaching credential, but I didn't, I didn't get the contract. So I, I saw the imbalance in that, and I preferred to work with youngsters rather than work with college youngsters. And this, to this day, there's no teachers of black history in the Portland schools. 
uh, Mr. Jeff Brooks, who was my dear and best friend, my cousin, he taught uh, black history at Jefferson High School. And I taught it at Adams High School. And Adams High School kind of had an interesting history. It's all gone now because it was situated on the corner of 42nd and Killingsworth. And that drew students from Madison High School, which is now Leotis McDaniel High School, Benson High School, Jefferson High School. And um, and so those populations were reduced, and we ended up with kind of a hybrid, which was ahead of its time, because it wasn't an all-white school, it was an all-black school, and the athletic teams were just becoming competitive with the powers that be. And they eventually they found something wrong with the school, tore the school down. I couldn't believe it, but so I had that experience early on and it kept moving me from one school to another. I was one of the founding administrators for what is now Harriet Tubman Middle School for three years. It was called the new middle school and it grew out of the demand of the Black United Front and Ronnie Herndon and, and people that knew that the Black community deserved to have its own middle school and not always be on the busing plan and that. And so that's how uh, Harriet Tubman came to be. And then they said, well, you know, you're a specialist now in building middle school, so we'd like you to go to Ockley Green and convert it from a K-8 to um, a middle school. And so I did that. And then um, then they parked me over at MLC. They kept moving me further and further from the community. So I was at MLC, which is a K-12 school. I think it's one of the best models, but it doesn't support the athletic program. As a K-12 school, it didn't, they didn't feature athletics very much. And uh, so it remained as a unique alternative school, but I was further from the community. And uh, when uh, the principal, uh, guy by the name of Cloudy Byer, retired, he assured me that I was going to get his job because I wanted to be a principal and move up. But that didn't happen. When he retired, they put somebody else in the job and they moved me to the research and evaluation department down at the, at the what is now the Matthew Prophet Education Center. Um, at that time, it was called the Blanchard Education Center. It's the big house. And I was tucked away in the research and evaluation department. So instead of being Mr. Popular, coming to different schools and having mentoring sessions with the kids and the teachers, professional development, whatever, I came in as an evaluator. Now, you start coming into school, you got a clipboard and a checklist, you're not going to be that popular. <laughs> so, but uh, as good fortune would have it, or, um, the superintendent of schools at that time, Matthew Prophet, the first and only African-American to be superintendent of schools in Portland, um, tapped me and asked if I, he couldn't go to a conference and wondered if I could go in his place. I think the conference was in Kansas City. So I said, sure, I'll go. And from that point on, I had a network of national contacts of people in other districts who appreciated the work that I was doing and uh, I was discovered by a guy named Congressman Augustus F. Hawkins. Augustus Hawkins uh, wrote the Title I law. He also wrote the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, and, and the Title I law, which is Elementary Secondary Education Act, 1974. Um, and as I affiliated with him, uh, he had just founded something called the National Council on Educating Black Children, NCEBC. And so I worked with him directly and with the greatest minds in the country, Dr. Adelaide Sanford, Dr. Asa Hilliard, Dr. Ron Clark, um, any number of great authors that now are authors of historical black books. Uh, so I was in touch with them and that changed my whole 
trajectory. And after uh, I became president of the National Council of Educated Black Children, I was recruited and moved to San Francisco. And I worked there for 14 years implementing something called a Blueprint for Action, which was a compilation of ideas that each stakeholder group, parents and family, um, health professionals, law enforcement professionals, school administrators, teachers, and children themselves, what did they think or believe that they should do or could do to make things better for African-American children? Because we've always been in the lower tier, um, lower echelon of performance data. Of course, we've always been very articulate, very energized, and had a great value for education within our families. When I went to college, uh, there was a gentleman in Portland by the name of Ted Freeman. And they were so proud of us breaking the barrier and attending college universities. The guys who were my age, and by that time in the mid-60s, we'd been through the riots in Detroit and and uh, other places, you know, Washington, D.C., and that um, there was a certain demand or pressure for equality. And the NAACP was a great advocate, along with Urban League and a whole network of African-American organizations. And so we were the beneficiaries of that hard work, uh, that risk that people had taken, that voice, the black power movement, and so forth. Um, so we got an opportunity to go to college that we might not otherwise have gotten. So we valued that. We appreciated that. And, uh, and Ted Freeman, when we came home to Portland for the summer, he would hire us as porters on the train. In 1970, I worked for the Union Pacific Railroad all the way up until I finished college, which happened to be coincidentally in 1970. Amtrak took over the passenger rail business in the United States. And, and Burlington Northern, Southern Pacific, Union Pacific all uh, became part of the Amtrak system. And that's when European Americans took the jobs of the porters. Up to that point, it was all black because nobody was going to take a service job. It's kind of like volunteering to be a slave. So, you know, I, I want to work in the cotton fields. You know, I, I, want to, I want to work, you know, cutting corn and tobacco. No, it was going to, that job was reserved for black men. They gave you three pieces of equipment. They gave you a key to the, to the water closet. They gave you a cap, which had your porter status on it. And they gave you a step box, a step box, was about that size, but it was square. It had four legs on it. And as you step off a train, it's about three feet down. So when when you were helping passengers off the train, you put the step box there so they'd have something to step on and not hurt themselves. Now, if you lost any one of those items, your cap, your key to the water closet, or your step box, you was fired. They wasn't giving you another one. You couldn't go back and say, man, I left my cap in. No, you're done. We got more people that want that job. And so it was a temporary job, and it kept us working all the time. And uh, I, uh, our motto was a pocket full of money, a tank full of gas. And so I was, I was making more money as a porter on a train from tips and salary uh, than I made in the first seven years of teaching. So it was at age uh, 20, 21, I always had three or $4,000 in my pocket. My mom would always get after me. Somebody go hit you in the head, man. Take your money. I said, nobody knows. That's why I learned in the streets of Chicago. Nobody knows how much money you got until you tell them or show it to them or flash or, you know, you got to discipline yourself about your, about your money. But uh, so I worked right alongside 
uh, the veteran porters who were also on the trains. And that's how they kind of matched us up. They gave us a, a mentor or a teacher or a supervisor. They really didn't have supervisors per se, because he was a porter right alongside me, or I was a porter right alongside him. But what it did do, it gave them some help. So all the bags that they had to handle, then I'm handling those bags. And they was, you know, coasting pretty much. And uh, I know Avel Gordley dad, Mr. Gordley, um, uh, was a porter of the train. And I rode with him from Portland to Seattle in the back. So our runs were from Portland to Pocatello, Idaho and back, from Portland to Huntington, Oregon and back, and from Portland to Seattle and back. We do that in one day. The other ones were overnight. We'd leave at 1 o'clock this afternoon. We'd get to Pocatello tomorrow afternoon or tomorrow morning, get off the train, sleep all day, and then catch the train coming westbound, coming through Pocatello, relieve those porters, and then come on back home. After you worked 171 hours in one month, all your hourly wages was overtime. So that's how we ended up, you know, making good money. And the Union Pacific Railroad, the Portland Terminal Railroad Company, entrusted Ted Freeman with the responsibility for identifying, screening, hiring, firing, letting people go, advising you. They didn't let you make too many mistakes. And uh, that kept you, you know, in, in order. Now, the ground porters, which are known as porters, were called red caps. And the red caps was a special category occupying the lowest tier on the hierarchy of employees in the railroad industry. They were the bag hustlers. And my dad was a red cap. He worked on the curb at the Union Station for 37 years. Basically worked himself to death and died from lung cancer. Never smoked. So we figured that those little particles of dust, metal dust off the wheels of the trains and being in that environment where you're inhaling oil and smoke fumes and everything was what, you know, caused people a lot of early demise. But their job as a red cap, and I think I mentioned earlier, he, he said, you got to work, son. If you don't work, you're going to steal. If you steal, you're going to jail. It's as simple as that. So they wanted you to make an honest living all the time. They emphasized it. They emphasized it. And uh, um, you wanted to be clean all the time. Shine your shoes, brush your teeth, comb your hair, let's go. You always, and to this day, when I work in the elementary schools, I wear a shirt and tie to school every day, partly to commemorate the the life of my that my dad and his peers uh, lived. They, they had to wear a clean white shirt uh, to go along with their gray jacket. In the wintertime, they had a little heavier, like police officers have a heavy uh, wool or heavy cotton jacket. Uh, but there's, I worked in the summertime, so it was always white linen, and we were always clean. And so part of my wear to a, a tie to work every day is a tribute to the men, but also as um, an example to the young people black and white, male and female, teachers and students, of what a black man could look like on a daily basis. And some people say, well, you're putting pressure on us. Now you're making everybody have to wear a tie. I said, no, that's, I'm telling you why I wear a shirt and tie. You wear for your own reason, you know, if you want to. Porters started at 6 a.m. About the time that the first train is getting ready to depart, it would come down, clean the station, an interesting uh, nomenclature. The Union Station in Portland, there's a Union Station in, in St. Louis, there's a Union Station in Chicago, there's a Union Station in Los Angeles, there's a Union Station in Montgomery, Alabama. I discovered when I was passing through there, 
and that the Union Station is the place where all the trains come through. And at one time, the passenger rail business was as big as the airline business is now. And so everybody rode the train, and um, but those Union Stations were the place where the porters reported to work, where the red caps, I'm thinking about my dad in particular, his colleagues reported for work at 6 o'clock in the morning. It was off at 3 o'clock. Your days off was not five days a week and then two days off. Well, it was, but it wasn't always on the weekends. And and this was particularly true for those uh, people that worked in the dining car department. It was more or less porters on the train. Now, I worked as a porter on the train, what they call a chair car porter. I rode the train from point A to point B in the chair car, or what we might call on the airlines, in the coach department, uh, in the passengers, the general passengers. And then you had the first class compartments, which are the, um, the sleeping berths, the Pullman porters. The Pullman porters were a distinct group of porters uh, because uh, they ran much longer routes. They would run from Portland to Chicago and back right alongside the dining car crew, which would go from Portland to Chicago and back. And it's a six-day trip. You work six days on, three days off, that kind of routine. But the interesting thing was you uh, were not honored uh, by having your birthday off if you had to go out on your anniversary or Christmas morning or New Year's Eve, then you was gone. Wasn't no, uh, how about, can I take a day off? No. Uh, and working in either the dining car or as a chair car porter on the train and the passenger train or as a red cap on the curb. And those porters that basically baggage handlers. Um, you could be fired on the word of, uh, of a customer. He looked at me cross-eyed and, he said something to my wife or something like that, you're done. So that kept you within a particular range of behavior, which was always courteous, not overly so, because we wasn't kissing people's feet or anything, but uh, it kept you in a range of behavior that was always respectful, was always uh, timely, was always courteous, was always patient, was always inquisitive, generous. And those qualities... Uh, became the qualities not only of their work, but of their life. You very rarely heard the men cuss, except when you was in the locker room. Now, uh, speaking of the day uh, of work for a red cap, the baggage handler that handled the baggage on the curb, that porter uh, had a little different life because uh, the, the, you had the day shift, then you had the, then you had the swing shift, then you had the graveyard work from midnight to six in the morning. And uh, the graveyard, some people preferred it because they had their days to themselves and they didn't mind staying up all night. Uh, others on the swing shift was kind of good because you could have your days to yourself and you work in the evening until 11 o'clock at night and then sleep, you know, at work best. But for our, my dad and his colleagues, they worked the day shift. It was a better shift because there was more traffic, more opportunity for you to make some tips. And my dad told me that. He and my mom, they would, he would bring his tips home. they put him in a jar. And at the end of the week, they'd all their money, throw it up in the air. And all this stuff to the ceiling, they would take to the bank. And all that came back down, they would scoop it up and then go out and spend it on mom. <laughs> so that was their, their philosophy. They weren't frivolous with their money, but they made the point that, you know, we ain't got that much money, but we're going to spend it. And to this day, you know, there's a lot of money that passed through the hands of black people, a lot. 
And if we can't buy a car, we can buy some shoes. And if we can't own a home, uh, we'll have a boat. You know, we'll, 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 we're in the economy, and it's revealed in many in the commercials now. But it used to when you wouldn't be on no TV commercial. Now they can't do without you. None. And some of that is the influence of the civil rights movement where things, equality became, you know, more, more uh, compatible with society. And some of that is just great demand. We eat all the McDonald's burgers and we eat all the Popeye's chicken. We eat all the, you know, we're an important part of the economy. But the, um, but the porters in particular had a particular role and that's what I learned in working on the train. I had to bring that same courtesy, that same tolerance. And uh, and we have different ways of dealing with people. For example, I'd be working on a train, we'd go on overnight between here and Pocatello. And uh, at midnight, you know, at, at dark, then they pull the shades down and turn the lights out and everybody goes to sleep. Uh, at daybreak, the shades come up. Now daybreak is five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning. Uh, at daybreak, all the kids wake up and they got to go to the bathroom. You can't really sleep much after daybreak. So I'd be working on a train and the uh, guy would say, hey, boy, uh, give me a pillow. Because we sold pillows. Uh, they would issue you like 50 pillowcases, clean pillowcases, and you would put them on pillows and then you would sell them to the customers. And then that the, the car cleaners would come and they'd take all the pillows, take the laundry, separate it, and do their own laundry. Hey, boy. Get my pillow. I say, you want a pillow, sir? Two of them. One for me and my wife. Yes, sir. Then I disappear and go sit down in the smoker, which was the men's lounge at the end of each car, and read or you know I got my work done. And uh, then I'd come back. I say, uh, I had one of those flashlights had like six D batteries in it, you know. And I turn it on, turn the light on. See what what is that, man? I said, do you still want a pillow? Yeah, boy, I thought you were going to get me a pillow. So uh, right away, sir. Then I tell him, go back to sleep. Just before daybreak, I would come and sell him his pillow. I thought you were coming back. You know? Then here's your pillow, sir. It's your pillow? Yeah. Send me his say, pay for the pillows. At daybreak, about 30 minutes later, the shades has come up, <laughs> and he's miserable. You know, that's all I could do. I was always courteous. I was always especially attentive to anticipating their needs, helping the ladies get their bag down off the rack and, and that sort of thing. And uh, it, and then, you know, it didn't, never hurt to, to go a little extra. And, uh, and, and people are funny. That's what my barber told me. He cut a lot of the porter's hair. Uh, Mr. Maurice Grigsby had a shop on Alberta Street, a one-chair barbershop. And so I went in there one day and he said... Uh, he turned the clippers off and went over to the window. He said, uh, came back. He said, little grass, I'm going to tell you something. People are funny. He never explained it or whatever. Later I realized that he, what he mean was people tell you one thing and they're going to do something else. They're going to tell you they're going to be on time or promise you tickets to the concert and they're going to come through. And it's people are funny. I told my brother that, you know, some years ago, some years later. And he, he said, I had that same experience. Mr. Maurice was cutting my hair, and he turned the clippers off and went over to the window and looked up and down the street like he was looking for the police or something. Came back and said, Little Grace, I'm going to tell you something. Ain't nothing easy. So we use those as bookends on our life. Me and my brother, we're the only ones that know that story. People are funny. 
and ain't nothing easy. And between that, you really have, you know, a wide range of understanding to come to you. The porters were uh, respected. And whether it was in Seattle or Tacoma or Portland, each of which had its own union station, the porters were respected because they always conducted themselves. You never hear no loud talking or cussing or carrying on, at least not in public. The, the locker room was a little different, but they were always uh, dressed. Uh, the shoes were always shine. They always looked like they just came out of the haberdasher, um, just as a matter of habit and keeping people off of you. You know, if you if you dress sloppily or, you know, you're not clean, but people notice that and they don't trust you. Uh, the, the Pullman porters in particular were uh, uh, given a little more respect because they were with their customers for three days at a time or maybe cross country all the way to New York. And, um, and people would entrust their children uh, who say, uh, I'd like you, Mr. Eddie B., to be the, I'd like you to take care of my, my daughter and my, my kids until they get to Omaha and I'm, here's the extra hundred dollars to just make sure they get to their destination. They didn't have cell phones and then, so they had to wait to hear from them and all that. But they entrusted black men with their children all the way across the country. And it was very, very common. And those were also people who had the means, newspaper publishers, uh, business bank presidents or whatever, they were traveling first class. And so they could afford to rent a bedroom or um, uh, the bedroom was could sleep two people, and then they had a roomette which had a bed and just for one person, which was a, but it was away from the crowd. And then you just had a sleeping berth, and just a bunk bed on a train. And those would be that'd be something they do for their children, and get them from point A to point B. Sometimes they old, were older children, you know, fourteen years old, going to visit grandmother for the summer. It was a lot of traffic and a lot of, and so look how valuable that would be to someone to know that they could count on you to get their child out of their view uh, and entrust them to you to get across country. So so the Pullman porters, not only were they entrusted uh, and not only were they trustworthy and did they earn the trust, but in order to reach up and be able to have the strength and the leverage to pull the bed down, click, uh, you had to be a pretty strong cat. So when you see pictures of the Pullman porters, You'll see these guys, most of them were six foot one, six foot three. They were all big, strong, handsome, well-dressed men because they could handle getting that berth down. Because if you couldn't get the berth down, you know, you couldn't really do your job. That's why I didn't qualify as a Pullman porter. But uh, but the porter's day was long. Uh, they had responsibility for cleaning the Union Station, every corner, every floor. And uh, as a result... Uh, they had skills for mopping and cleaning and, and all that, which became part of their repertoire, too. And my dad worked for a janitorial company. because Everybody worked two jobs. Everybody always worked two jobs, except, you know, the men. Moms, she worked a day job, and then she'd come home and take care of the house. I always wondered about my dad, and he was such a good man, that he chose not to work in the glamorous job of traveling in the dining car or as a Pullman porter and uh, cross country. Because when you get to Chicago, now you're reading the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, you're bringing news back and forth, you're meeting people. And he was a people person. And after he passed away, 
I realized that it wasn't that he was such a noble workman, but he had to keep an eye on the household because my mom and her girlfriends would spend up all the money if you if you wasn't there to supervise them and help them with the way that we want the household to be run. So he sacrificed that in order. To, and of course, my mom was drop dead gorgeous. An interesting thing that came up in in earlier discussion was about how the waiters, the dining car room, which was a separate entity, the dining car department, you was cooks, you were waiters. Um, some cooks were especially good. As you know, some restaurants are better than others, and usually it's the cook that got the recipe or the preparation methods to make make them red onions really work or make the beans really tasty or what have you. They cooked out of their pockets. They had those white linen jackets, and inside their jackets, they might have 10 pockets on this side and 10 pockets on that side where they kept their spices. They didn't have them in a the cupboard. They wasn't letting their, their recipes get out. So they said, well, you make that. Well, I put a little of this and a little of that in there. And that's where they kept their, their secrets. And, uh, and if you knew, uh, if you and I were going to travel to Chicago and we knew that Mr. Davis's crew wasn't leaving until Friday, we might wait and change our date and travel on Friday because he's going to cook for us every day for the next three days. And it's going to be exquisite every time. And not going to be no questions. That could be no problem. Now those jobs in the dining car department was reserved strictly for African-American men. Um, they did have women work on the train in some departments. They had a beauty salon on the train. Um, but it was kind of an unspoken policy. If a black woman and her children come into the dining car, we got you covered. Never, there was never no discussion. There was never no, it looked like a regular transaction except when you take the ticket and gave it to the steward, uh, he would set it aside and and that family would get to eat. And the other passengers would never know the difference. And we fed a lot of black families. That's how, as the underground. Now the guy that took the money, the steward, was always white. All the rest of this, all the waiters was black. And they operated, a, each waiter had a, a, a four and a deuce, a, a table for four here and a table for two here across the aisle from each other. And if there was 10 rows like that, they would have 10 waiters. Some cars were a little larger, most were standard. But that white guy that I told you who was the steward who handled all the money, looked like he was white. He was passing for white. He was black. He was part of that same, that same population that was waiting at tables, but he had the benefit of being able to not be detected as because white folks did not want to see black people handling the money. They just just rubbed them the wrong way. They 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 would assume that you was pocketing the money or whatever. But as soon as you had them in a, a fair skinned it, uh that that was how that part of the dining car, how they cooked. Um if you see a picture of the kitchen, it's stainless steel. It is spotless. It is sanitary like a hospital. And that was the job of the Pantryman, who was low on the totem pole, because he cleaned the kitchen. And then you had one guy or two who was the pantryman's mule. And they cleaned up after the pantryman. So all the garbage that was on the floor, all the crap that fell between the slats, they had that was their job, clean out. And uh, But some people, uh, they favored that job. 
because they wanted to work in the dining car department. They still got a chance to travel to Chicago and to Pittsburgh and, and to New York and to Miami. Sometimes they'd be gone for a week, depending on where, because you could go there if you didn't have a family which you had to report back to or your family was taken care of. Then you could sign on and travel New York to Miami, New York to Miami for a period of time. And it, it was a pretty glamorous job. And they were well-respected and they were always well-dressed and always had a little more cash than the average person. And they all bought homes. I belong to something called the Railroad Senior Citizens Association, which was all the retired men. I remember the guys that I worked alongside when I was in college. 20 years later, they was all retired. And they belonged to the Railroad Senior Citizens Association. They made me a member of the Railroad Senior Citizens Association. So I was the youngest of the old guys and, of course, the oldest of the young guys. Then I made the point in the film, they all owned their own homes. They owned their own homes. And they knew what home ownership meant. They always kept their property neat like they kept their clothes. And it was just kind of a trademark, you know. Uh, and not only, um, not only railroad men. Uh, we like to think of ourselves, railroad men, kind of a special category, but we really didn't work no more than preachers who also drove nice cars. They had income and whatnot. Uh, keep yourself together. Well, I can't easily connect the jobs on the railroad with the jobs in the community, uh, except that they were full-time employees. And during the Depression, um, I remember James Brooks, who was a pseudo-uncle, um, my mom and his wife were like sisters. And so we kind of, you know, family is the people that you live with. You know. But he was also the, the, he succeeded E. Shelton Hill, called Shelley Hill, who was, is featured in my film. He came from uh, Oklahoma. He said his dad was an interpreter for the U.S. government and spoke Choctaw, Chickasaw, Cherokee, Creek, Crow. I remember that because they were all C's. And, uh, but James Brooks, um, told me that he had some guys lined up that were going to put me through law school, but I wasn't that interested. And so he couldn't, couldn't, you know, uh, push that. But, um, they provided a lot of jobs for people in the civil industry and civil employment. Uh, my mom was the first African-American, her and Miss Peoples, Clara Peoples was the first African-Americans to operate an elevator in a department store. So that was a big job back in those days. Anyway, I told uh, I told Pat Patterson that uh, every every day is a holiday. He said, "How you doing?" I said, well, "You know, every day is a holiday." He said, that, "That's not the whole story, son." He says, "It's every day is a holiday, and I love it." That's the whole story. It's kind of like the misnomer that we have now, uh, thanks to uh, I'm sure it was an innocent mistake. Hillary Clinton called it. Um, uh, it takes a village. No, it takes a whole village. And there's a the difference a night and day between it takes a village, which might qualify, which might imply that people are best off if they grow up in a village and not in a, a South Side Chicago neighborhood. But it really mean it takes a whole village means it takes every stakeholder. Remember Congressman Hawkins and the blueprint for action. It takes every stakeholder to have a part in raising the children if we're going to have them grow up right. And say, every day is a holiday, and I love you. And we'd always get it right. We'd always know until the elders correct us. And now when we try to 
help the young people. They figure it out. If it ain't on TV and they didn't hear it from, you know, one of the popular singers, that might not, might not be true. Dr. Benjamin Mays, who was the president of Morehouse College, he said, uh, failure is not sin. Low aim is sin. And so if you don't aspire to be above your next pig weight, if you're not thinking about how you could become an attorney and a judge, how you could become a medical professional, how you could become an owner of a business, which is our, our kids are missing out on that because particularly right now, we're in a war for the hearts and minds of our young people. Um, and we're in that war because uh, there's so much money that passes through their hands and keeping them from knowing how to make good use of resources, um, keep them poor, keep them with a low uh, esteem. Be clean, be honest, be good, be generous, be faithful, and be striving. That was the that was the mantra or the standard for black men and their families. Thanks for tuning in to Oregon Hidden Legacy. For more information about this podcast, go to OregonHiddenLegacy.org.